magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and I have an amazing guest this week. Her name's Dr. Rebecca Bailey and I have to read you her bio. She's got several bios on several different places but I gotta read you this. She's one of those ladies that has done so much stuff that you're kind of unsure how she has the time to do any of it. But anyway, I'll read you her bio here. Rebecca Bailey, PhD, is a leading family psychologist and equestrian who has become a world-renowned professional teacher, speaker, author, and entrepreneur. Rebecca is the former director of the Sonoma Police Department's Youth and Family Services Program, was a therapist educator for programs such as Marin County's DUI program, and is a founder of Transitioning Families, a group of independently licensed mental health practitioners dedicated to Bailey's innovative ideas for helping families through crisis and difficult change. She continues to work with a variety of state and national organizations such as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and is an advisory council member of the Onsite Foundation and Brain Train America. Dr. Bailey is actively involved in applying Dr. Stephen Porge's research on the autonomic nervous system to her long-standing work with a variety of patients recovering from life-altering, stressful and traumatic experiences. There's actually a very famous... Um, <clears throat> patient of hers that she now works with that is mentioned in the podcast anyway she believes that understanding the interaction between the nervous system and our thoughts and actions is the key to, con to compassionately guiding families and individuals to healing and self-understanding along with her two colleagues margie mcdonald and jc dugard she founded the polyvagal institute polyvagal equine institute offers in-person and virtual workshops training and interventions that help us get unstuck from old patterns think flexibly and have effective communications and compassion, with compassion and kindness. A graduate of the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, Dr. Bailey was raised in the Boston area but located, relocated to California 35 years ago. She now lives in Northern California with her loving husband and countless animals. So that is one of her bios, but the bio on the Polyvagal Equine Institute page says Dr. Bailey is a leading trauma therapist who specializes in complex case scenarios. She has over 30 years experience in the field and continues to be dedicated to the notion that authenticity, common sense and kindness are the most important elements of effective treatment. She's a lifelong equestrian, an animal lover who continues to believe animals, in particular horses, have much to teach humans about curiosity and compassion. She's the author of two books, Safe Kids, Smart Parents and Equine Connections, Polyvagal Principles, as well as articles on polyvagal principles in the courtroom and application of equine interventions to a variety of populations. She has also, this is not in the bio here, but she's also appeared on 2020 with Diane Sawyer and has actually been interviewed by Anderson Cooper, who a few people who are in other parts of the world, he's a, a big time um, TV host here in America. And, uh, you know, what's not in her bio 
there's some this lady has got such amazing stories and she's totally not she if you guys listen to the podcast with uh chantelle pratt who you know is a neuroscientist and you're kind of thinking that you're going to get this nerdy sciencey type and chantelle was anything but that she was like a stand-up comedian dr rebecca bailey is very very similar such an amazing human um but you know, you'll have to listen to the story, but I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag here real quick. A couple of the little anecdotes she told me, you know, spent a number of years on the tour bus with the Grateful Dead and her great, 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 great grandmother or something like that was the last witch hung in the Salem witch trial. So this lady is absolutely fascinating and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Dr. Rebecca Bailey, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm excited to have you on here. You know, you are a leading family psychologist, but you're also the creator of Polyvagal Equine Institute. And, you know, you're gracious enough to come on here without knowing really anything about me and who the hell I am. But um, something happened to me a few years ago to where I started looking at uh, you know, primarily a horse trainer, I started looking at how I do things differently, how to do things differently with horses. And I worked on this thing for a number of years and it was like working astoundingly well and it was totally different than anything I'd really seen before. And it turns out it's basically polyvagal theory. It's, it's the polyvagal theory is what explained the science of why what I was doing with the horses worked and it was and it was so much beyond training it wasn't you know input output outcome expectation it was a communication and it was it was a lot of listening and and uh, I know somewhere I've read a little bit about you you've you've done a lot of work I don't know if you've done work with Daniel Siegel but you're inspired by Daniel Siegel and his you know he says attunement is the sense of being seen and being heard and i had a podcast guest from canada last year who's a trauma therapist sarah schlotty and she says she expands on it she says that attunement is the sense of being sir being seen being heard feeling felt and getting gotten mm. and i've been doing that stuff so much for the horses that here in the last year or so i actually changed my business name to warwickshire attuned horsemanship because for me i think it's kind of the holy grail of at least for me, uh, getting along with horses. But I'm really excited to delve into what you do and how you got there. So Stephen Porges is the person that I've worked with more. And Stephen Porges is the re head researcher, discoverer oh, of, okay. that, yes. of polyvagal. So um, just like you, it's amazing. I, the fact that polyvagal explains the science of true respectful communication human to human horse to human it, it suddenly all made sense i've been on horses like many of us since i could walk in my family i wasn't the gifted rider but i was the rider that would go out and ride the trails and absorb the world around me um like many of us grew up in a very tumultuous house and i had a beautiful horse a little mare named Lockett, and she was a 15-2 quarter horse roached mane. Back in the days, you could do hunter classes on a roached mane little quarter horse. And she was my, I find out years later, my co-regulator. 
I would come home from school. My parents were quite self-absorbed and were either arguing or doing their thing. And I'd go down to the barn, and I kid you not, I, I write about this in my book. Um, she would, I'd go down there, and she would pull her head to me. And when I feel and think about a sense of safety and security in the world, I think about that horse's head around me. Um, so that to me is the essence of true connection, is a safe place between two people. It's the space between horse and human, which is what, or human and human, which is what polyvagal theory has helped me really understand and embody, I think. So you just mentioned in your book, you're the author of two books, Safe Kids, Safe Parents and Equine Connections, Polyvagal Principles. <laughs> Which one of those books is that in? That's in the um, Equine Connections, Polyvagal Principles. And we just got it translated in mm. France and Holland and blah, 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 all sorts of places I don't even know. But it was... a uh, really a product of an ode to Lockett and my little mare's horse name was Lockett. I've had many other horses since, but Lockett is my girl. And during COVID, I felt so disconnected from the world. I really did. I was still doing my practice on Zoom and taking care of people, you know, and, and trying to pretend I knew what the hell I was doing, you know, with COVID and all of the disconnection we had. And I decided that the grounding spot was to remember Lockett. And then to think back to all the stories. I've been doing equine therapy since, equine assisted interventions, since about 1993. My beginning of animal assisted therapy was in 1989, went into uh, hospital, a state hospital with a group that brought farm animals in. And it was really early. It was back at the time where we were told, don't tell anybody because they'll think you're crazy as a psychologist. You don't want anyone to know you're working with animals. So we went into the state hospital and there was this man that hadn't talked in 20 years, come to find out later, had a little pot-bellied pig back when everybody thought pot-bellied pigs, pigs wouldn't grow up and put this little pot-bellied pig on right. his lap. <laughs> And the pot-bellied pig peed on him. And the, the head researcher and myself looked at each other like, oh, crap, right? Here we go. Well, the guy goes, pig! And, like, big smile on his face. And the nurses were like, and this is a true story, 20 years they hadn't heard this man talk. And it turned out after that moment he was able to share verbally about growing up on a farm. And so that was sort of the beginning of like, yes, horses are the magic, or not the magic, but horses are my deep, deep love, but my office is filled with cats and dogs. And, you know, I, I believe that there are other ways to connect that ventral vagal heart part, that piece that um, animals are so tuned into <laughs> that we're so far away from. Wow. So that's a long time ago, like 1992, you were doing uh, that sort of stuff that yeah, I, I don't think equine assisted therapy was really on anybody's horizon back then, was it? It wasn't. Um, what some people don't know, though, there's a, a type of um, therapy called Santray, and I believe her name is Magna Gerber, who, who looked at that, um, who started the Santray. She's known as the, the mother of the work. I don't do Santray. But she talked about bringing her clients down to the horses. And so if we go back in literature, we'll see it. But it was like a, a dirty little secret. I, it's really interesting. I think you'll love this one. Um, 
when I was doing uh, what's called the qualifying project towards my PhD, I looked at, I did a, th um, a survey of 80 horsewomen that owned horses, obviously, versus people that didn't own animals, women that didn't. And I was looking at, like, what's this common variable? And what came up was this thing called military leadership, which sounds awful in our world, like, ah, military. However, it was a skill set that they see, they saw at the time in West Point cadets, which is about the ability to lead through connection and not through dominance. And that's what these women scored really high on, which was so interesting. Now, the sad thing of it, four years ago, my house burned down in the big fires in 2017, and my typewritten document that I had written my master's thing on burnt up with it. But um, there are people that saw it. But really, I just, and at the time when I did that study, I was working as an assistant horse trainer. and. You know, I, I am one of these people, not like you. I go in the barn and the horses spit tobacco and say, prove it. You walk in a barn and they go, reporting for duty. I don't know about you, but a lot of the true horse um, listeners that I've worked with, it's just a different vibe. They look at the horse and the horse responds differently. But what I learned with that military leadership is this like really true connection with these horses. So I'd get up at, at five in the morning and lunge or ride about 10 or 15 horses, just thinking, how can I relate to this horse in a way that makes this horse the best horse they can be? <laughs> and I remember thinking that. And I would go down and I would work with the horses like I was painting a picture. And it just, I don't know, it really taught me then a lot about being a therapist. So then I would go into the office as an intern and say, how can I help this person be the best person they are in front of me? Sorry, I'm rambling. I don't mean to, but I get going. No, that's that's perfectly that's perfectly fine. So this was when was this? This would be in the early in eighty eighty nine ninety, early years. Okay, and you were so you had did you have your PhD at the time? No, I got my PhD in ninety three. Okay, and so you were an intern. What had you done up to that point in time? As as far as a psychologist or with riding. Or just in my life. Okay. No, the psychologist part. The psychologist part. I had worked for many years um, just volunteering. I also, this is really embarrassing, but my 80s were spent with the Grateful Dead. Three of my friends, I don't know if you know the Grateful Dead, the rock and roll band, but three of my friends were married to um, band members in the Grateful Dead. And so my 80s were really spent going out on the road with them and helping <laughs> deal with conflict and listening to music. And the first, the early 80s, maybe I don't remember as well, but the mid-80s, <laughs> I began more of my, um, I like to say, it was my life skills training and dealing with complex scenarios because there was a lot of, a lot of craziness around that band, for sure. And I don't really talk about it often, but... So what I want... <laughs> What I want to know is what came first, the psychology degree, and you use that on uh, the band members and their wives or girlfriends of the Grateful Dead, or you did that for so long you thought, hell, I might as well have a psychology degree if I can keep well, these people under control. Well, it's actually sort of true in combination with also growing up in the family I did in Boston, and, and really, like, again, the horses saved my life, as many of us will say. And when you're hanging around the Grateful Dead, there's a lot of curiosity. 
<laughs> you know, and it did play, it paid flow forward after the, uh, it's kind of cool. I di- disconnected my life, went through a divorce, blah, blah, blah. After the fires, the one person that reached out and, and gave, well, many people did, but Jerry Garcia's daughter called me after 20 years and gave us a place to stay in a nearby town, a town called Sebastopol, for three weeks. Just said, hey, I've got this place. Do you want to go? And, and I was kind of surprised because I hadn't talked to any of them in 20 years, really, except for a couple friends. But um, kind of neat. So it was that, that belief that the, herds, the herd expands, but you're still part of the herd. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Uh, so you're one of those people that, you know, I had your, I have your bio written here and it's like, you've done all these a million amazing things, but that wasn't listed <laughs> on your bio. And so that's just another one of those things. But like, you're one of those people that's like, how, how have you, how have you had time to, to do all this stuff? Um, and that's not really my question. That's just like a redundant sort of a question. What I want to actually because I've had a few people in the mental health game on the podcast in what it seems like is, and I'm just going to ask if it's true for you, what it seems like is they've had some sort of a trauma, tumultuous childhood, whatever, had some therapy that worked through that and it was like, wow, I feel like a completely different human being. I think other people, I would love to share this with other people. Is that Was that your journey to, to like being a, Psycho- psychologist? No. <laughs> I mean, I, my journey. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> my journey was, I, I don't know if I can swear, but I'm going to. There's a lot of bullshit in the field, and there's a lot of over-intellectualization, and there's a lot of wonderful people. I don't want to, like, you know, sh- put knives in the back of my colleagues, but there's so much in your head and so much processing of old narratives and blah, blah, blah. Why I got into it was I really understood, and it kind of is like what you said with horse training. I understood that there was this big element of the need to feel safe in your body. And there are other people that have written about it in a very intellectual level. But for me, horses saved my life. Horses helped me to be curious and really listen and be with the horse I was with which is part of why I went into it. Plus, I don't know what else I would do. I mean, if I was, if I was a good enough horse rider, I would have had, like all of us, dreams to go to the Olympics. But, um, <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that therapy. <laughs> I don't think that therapy saved my life. I certainly had a share of it in high school. I think horses and dancing and music and friendship and creating a herd around me that I love dearly. So I went into it because I definitely had an innate ability, period. And, and frankly, I thought a lot of the therapists I met were full of it. I thought I could do a better job, and that's awful, but it's the truth. It sounds a little arrogant. No, actually, I've had some therapists that I thought, hmm, <laughs> interesting you know what i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna do with you because i you know i know so little about and i know so little about you um what i'm gonna do here is as my listeners would know i usually send out 20 questions and have the um 
the guests choose four to seven of those and we chat through them. And usually I bring them up later in the podcast, but you chose a lot. You chose one, two, three, four. You like chose like 10 or 12 of them and said, you know, just however many we've got time for. But they're such good questions. I might just ask you the questions because a lot of times what will happen is we will chat for an hour and a half and then I get to the questions and they're mostly being answered already. Right. But we might do this in reverse order. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask as you the questions. As long as you ask me about my favorite book. I don't even think you chose that one, but we can do that. We can do that somewhere in there. Uh, but you were just talking about how, you know, you, th- you thought a lot of therapists were, you, you know, you could do a better job than then. First question that you chose was what is a common myth in your field of expertise that you'd like to debunk? Absolutely debunk the myth that you can't really care for your clients and that you can't really love your clients. I think that that's a myth that comes from therapists that don't have any sense of boundaries. From my perspective, I have to love my clients. I really do. And it doesn't mean that over the years, I used to do a whole lot more back-to-back clients in my office. Over the years, I've sort of morphed into doing a little this, a little of that. But I really have to love my clients or find something to really love about them. And it's safe. You know, it's not, <laughs> love doesn't mean sex, right? Love means just really, really caring. So I, that's something I really would love to debunk. And the other one is authenticity, just like horses. Humans that have been through trauma and humans in general, if they're tuned into their nervous system, they can feel BS. And for someone particularly in complex trauma, it's really scary if somebody's inauthentic. So I... I'm such a believer. We need evidence-based data and all of that to drive insurance and to, and to give us a context. But man, we have got to be willing to be authentic and present with our clients and really care for them. Sounds like the way I look at horse training these days. Um, there is, it's funny how you said that, you know, we, we're told not to have this and there is a psychiatrist who wrote a book and he's a relationship psychiatrist and I can't remember who it is because I listen to a lot of listen to a lot of audio books but he was talking about the fact that you know uh, marriage therapists are always tethered, told to never take sides and this guy was like I think that's BS I think sometimes I'll go I'll, I'll take sides and I forget what mm-hmm. I forget what his name is and what the therapy is that he does um, but yeah it was an inter- interesting reading his book and he says we're told never to do that and he says I think that's part of the missing piece so anyway um the next question that you chose in order and i i I don't think i've ever had a podcast guest not choose this one so that kind of gives you an idea of the kind of people i have on here but what is your relationship like with fear i think uh, i think fear for me has always been something that I embrace. I mean, it sounds it sounds easy when you're not in the middle of being scared to death. <laughs> when you're scared to death, it's like, yeah. But I think fear is somewhat of a challenge for me, and it's something that I've wanted. I I want to master now. There's certain things I don't skydive. I don't jump six feet, five six. You know, things like that. Three feet, three six at my tops. Not now, two six, maybe two feet. But I, I feel like fear is an opportunity for growth. And polyvagal theory, and part of what we really try to teach with the polyvagal equine um, 
uh, Institute's workshop is that ability to tolerate fear, to process it, and then move through it. Because it's such a big part of life. The other thing, and I always say this, when I used to show horses, if I went into the arena saying I'm scared to death, you would walk away and pretend you didn't know me if you were my trainer, right? Because I'd be on the wrong lead, I'd crash, you know? But if I said, I'm really excited and I got this, I would go in and shine. So I was the one that would get top three or, excuse me, would number seven, please leave the arena. So I, I really learned that fear, <laughs> fear is something I really, I, a lot of it is how you interpret it to yourself in your body. It's, an, it's a feeling in your body. It's a, it, the, then you translate it up to your head and your head says, oh yeah, I remember this. This is the time I fell off the horse or I remember this. You know, this is this wonderful time. And so if we can learn to regulate our bodies, we can learn to interpret, interpret our head and the narratives in a healthier manner. What is the saying? Fear is the same as excitement without the breathing. Yeah. Wow, I love that one. That one's really good. One That's really good. I think it was fear is the same as excitement. But it's the same in sensation as excitement without well, the breathing. Well, it's all in the sympathetic just, nervous system. And if you're in the sympathetic nervous system part of the ventral, the, the vagus nerve, not the ventral, the vagus nerve, what happens is then if you go deeper, deeper terror, you go into dorsal shutdown. And if you go into dorsal shutdown, you can't access upper level thinking. So through the breathing, we can regulate enough so that then we can go up into that curiosity, compassion part of us and deal with it in a different situation, in a different way. So when we have families with fear, whether it's you know from a familial abduction, divorce, high conflict divorce, whatever it is, what we really try to do is work on them feeling comfortable with the fear, wait a minute so that they can go back to grazing or get to a place where they can go back to grazing. Yeah, that whole, um, that whole shutdown thing. So long story short, because you don't know anything about me, but I don't want to say it too much because everybody on the podcast has heard it a million times. But I, uh, about seven years ago, my wife bought a, a high-level reining horse that had some issues that I thought I could train out of him or work through, and I couldn't. And it turns out this horse operated in very high dorsal tone. Like he, everything he did, he was in shutdown mode, even if he was doing like – and so training didn't work. I couldn't train the behaviors out of him because, you know, he was he was just a little robot is what he was. And, and quite a few of the reining horses are a little that way. Um, you know, it's like being in the Marines or something or other. But he, you know, I think – and underneath it all, he's very, very, very sensitive and working through all the stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, the reason they shut down is because it's overwhelming and they can't deal with it. And he actually is the horse that made me – understand that that's been my whole life like i've i've spent my life in shutdown and you know and i had the perfect child perfect childhood you know so i've always thought no, no, there's no reason for anything like that with me but then as i've looked into it and looked into a lot more things you know reading waking the tiger by peter levine and then i found out from mom that i was you know had pneumonia when i was three months old and spent well, four months old or something rather and spent a week in the hospital with no you know and at that when you're three or four months old, you don't have access to fight or flight and you're left alone and you're scared. So the only thing you've got is free. So I've had this, 
I've had this lifelong freeze response that I, you know, I didn't know where it came from. I didn't even know I had it, you know. I, but, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been really interesting learning a lot about this stuff and where things come from. You know, from, that's you know? really interesting, and this is true story. I had the same experience as a baby of having pneumonia and being in the hospital and um, being isolated. And then I, I got pneumonia quite a lot as a child. And what I did was I went into fight flight and I tried to fight it and then I'd get asthma. And right now I've always had English horses. A friend of mine's daughter found me this really traumatized bucking horse who I've turned, worked with slowly to become um, just my great buddy horse trail, just incredible therapy horse. But same thing, because if I go to sympathetic, he stops and will jump up and up, you know, like, and you don't really want to be in sympathetic on a horse, right? But he has been my true right. embodiment. My friend, uh, Margie, who's known me for 43 years, she's was my original trainer, so to speak. She said, this is a horse I've waited my whole life for you to have because I have to be in ventral vagal compassion and play and like, you know, even he'll, he'll canter along and pin his ears and you just have to be like, hey, you know, and then you see his ear and he starts relaxing and it's just, it's, it's nothing about training. It's about my nervous system. So I got you on that. And it's really interesting because I had never really experienced dorsal. You know, I was more like beat my way out of the paper bag, right? And it's, it's what that's mm, really okay. explained to me is the importance of really understanding where you are in your vagal pathways. He's also, as I said, this amazing horse. He's never learned join up, but boy, will he follow right with a person who's sad in the arena. He'll just go right over ground and groundwork and go anywhere with them. And the, But if they disconnect, he disconnects. Right. It's kind of cool. So we have our teachers right now, our master teachers. Yeah, it's... it's... <sighs> Yeah, we certainly do. Uh, next question. What, if, if you could spread a message to the world, what would it be? Or your favorite quote, or both? My favorite quotes are all ridiculously silly, so I'm not going to go there. But, but um, this. I always sound so pretentious, but sometimes when I try to say, like, what's my view for the world? If we could all work on being more regulated, if we could work on regulating our nervous system, we could maybe hear each other. And that's where I'm going to slip this in, but it goes to the whole story of my favorite book. My favorite book is The Crucible. And the reason it's a book about the Salem witch trials my great-great-great-great-grandmother was the last so-called witch hung in Salem. And when we look, and I've been intrigued with this for many reasons, one because of my personal history and the other because it's such a powerful story of a dysregulated community where these young girls and the community turned on these really 
incredible people because of this high level of dysregulation. So the message for the world as I sit on the mountain and proclaim what I need is please, let's work on regulation. Let's work on getting comfortable and safe inside our bodies. If we can get there, we can really hear each other. If we can't get there, we're going to continue this thing, particularly in the U.S. right now. We're like a bunch of chickens with our heads cut off fighting over a scrap, you know? And it's all about regulation, just regulation. It's, it's funny, for me, polyvagal and what we teach at our workshops is so simple that sometimes it seems ridiculous. It's just so simple about regulation and learning how to be co-regulated and learning how to regulate. First, you have to learn how to be alone, to be able to be immobile in the presence of somebody else without fear. That's the core of anxiety is this intensity that we all feel when we interact with each other. And that's what horses teach us, how not to do that, how not to be that way. Right. Um, that was a fascinating little snippet <laughs> about your great-great-great-grandmother. You know, the other, I, I, I take screenshots of memes that I see all the time. And one I took a screenshot of the other day said, who knows why we were taught to fear the witches? and not those who burned them yep. alive. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I love that. I saw that as well. And um, it's amazing because if you really look into the history of the Salem witch trials, what you'll find is opinionated strong women or also property rights at the core of it. But what you also see is the dysregulation of fear and people getting caught up in... I mean, there's so many variables that went into it. But the fact of the matter is calmness, regulation is how they came out of it, of, of, you know, a voice that comes in and says, everybody, let's, let's, in the words of my friend Linda Kahanaf, who you may or may not know, Tao of Equus and books like that, rock back and sigh. Rock back and yep. sigh. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, the whole, the whole witch thing, um, not just the Salem witch trolls, but the whole witch thing was, it's like, I think most people I have on the podcast these days, if they lived in the Middle Ages, would be burned at the stake as a witch because, <laughs> because they have a connection to animals and, you know, they're connected to... And, and, and that, that was all about... It was almost all about disconnection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like if, if you connected to nature and, you know, you have some of that earth wisdom, is obviously you're a witch, you know, you've got some superstitious, you know, some crazy power. So, yeah, it was, I'm glad we're not in that. We're not in that uh, place anymore. So tell us more about The Crucible, seeing it's your favorite So The Crucible book. is Arthur Miller's play about what happened in this community. And um, it's the story, it's, it's beautifully written, but it's the story of the young girls and this woman, Tichuba, who was exactly what you just said. She was from, I believe, the Bahamas and was into herbals and things like that. But... In The Crucible, what you see is the ridiculousness of these young girls' accusations. And he really, in his writing, really brings it to life. Um, it's a very powerful book. And definitely, I believe he was written during, I believe it was during the Red Scare in the 50s in this country. And there were so many accusations and things being thrown around, very much like how it is now. You know, the black and white thinking, good guys versus bad guys. And um, to me, this book and this play embodied all of, all of the lessons that we need to remember, which is 
how important it is to be flexible in our thinking and how horrible black and white thinking can be in general. So I encourage people to read the book, watch the play. I think it's probably even been a movie. My great-great-great-great-grandmother was apparently a very you know, kind of opinionated old hag. <laughs> I guess the apple doesn't fall far. But um, but part of the the townspeople really had issues with her because her father, I believe, had given her land. And so that was another thing. The neighbor wanted the land and so started this story and got the message to the girls who then carried it forward. After they hung her, um, I guess she said the uh, Lord's Prayer with the noose around her neck, which you weren't supposed to be able to do. And her hanging kind of made the community go, whoa, whoa, this has gone too far. So she was the first, the, her family was the first family to get reparations from the community. Now we just last month I noticed another person, the last person to give reparations just happened, their family was given some sort of financial compensation for what had occurred. But I think it's a really important lesson that we listen to and think about. You know, the assumptions we make, the pieces that we put when our system is dysregulated. And I really, you know, I feel that with horses. When I'm on that little horse of mine and if I get mad or I want him to listen, I lose my ability to connect and really embrace who he is underneath me or with me, you know, and have compassion for maybe what he's dealing with from, I know for sure when he goes in arena, he's a better trail horse. He goes in arena, his first thing is like, oh, I remember this, you know. And so when we lose our ability and we get so deeply into our self and our, you know, like our needs, our assumptions, we lose our ability to regulate and stay calm and stay connected. Yeah, and, you know, talking, just talking about the divide in probably the world in general at the moment, but here in America especially too, um, it's, you know, I, th I think it's a lot about judgments. Like as soon as you, you know, judgment is really excluding others and not including others and as soon as you start judging them you're projecting your lens onto what they're doing and it kind of you know what i mean whether it's with horses or humans or whatever you know so the thing a lot of times these days i'm trying to get people to do with their horses is take every bit of information it doesn't matter what they're doing whether you think it's good or bad or whatever but like Take it under advisement, like don't apply your judgment to it because then your response to it is not the proper response for what's going on, but it's, it's your response to what's going on that has your prejudice laid over the top of it. And I had a horseman in the first year of the uh, podcast, I had a horseman named Mark Rashid on here who is also into a martial art called Aikido. And he talks about um, a mind like still water. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, if you go out to a pond first thing in the morning in that pond, there's no breeze. When you look into that pond, you get a direct reflection of what's on the other side of the pond. But if you project yourself into that pond anyway, you step into the pond, you throw a rock in the pond, you put your hand in there and swish the water or whatever, it distorts that reflection and you have actually changed what mm -hmm. is you, 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 what you've just done, your actions have just changed 
the interpretation you're getting of what's on the other side of the pond. It hasn't changed, but now you're, you know, you're... So if you can have a mind like still water to where you are non-judgmental, and you're a therapist, so I'll tell you, I did a couple of... About four years ago now, I did a year of uh, DBT, um, both individual and group therapy. Uh, didn't do anything for me because apparently you actually have to have some emotions for that particular... <laughs> thing to work uh, uh, but one of the homeworks we had was count your judgmental mm-hmm. thoughts and for me that was a turning point for like you know my my life has not been the same since because once I started counting judgmental thoughts and then I became aware of how many I had but there was how many I had about myself and you know, you just don't realize that you've got all these judgments going all day long about other people and about yourself and yada, 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 yada. And the same thing with horses, you know. And it was funny, after that year, I, um, I didn't do any clinics that year. I, I, that was 2018. And when I went back out doing clinics, or maybe I did a horse expo in New Zealand at the end of that year, but there was a, one of the demo horses was this big warm blood dressage horse that the lady leads in and he's running around in circles and snorting and running over her and looking at, everything and I said I you know I let her walk around for a while and I said bring him over here and I'll show you what I would do with him and normally I would take a hold of the horse and do something with the horse to get him in a better state and this particular horse when she handed the horse to me he just just completely relaxed because I wasn't looking at him like this is a warm blood who does this who does it was just like hey dude how's it going having a hard time are you you know and it was interesting because at this horse expo, I was just about to do some stuff. And, and the stuff that I was going to do is, is pretty much polybagel theory type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, more about the, the thing I find these days with training or your interactions with my interactions with horses is if I can communicate my awareness of their awareness. Right, that's nice. I like communicate my awareness of where their thoughts are. And when their thoughts change from one thing to another, if I can communicate, I saw your thoughts change. They don't have to be to me. It could be away from me or whatever. And they get that you can basically read their thoughts. They're completely different horses. It's like, hey, you're, you're pretty cool. But the thing with this one was I didn't do anything with this horse. And so I had to say to the crowd, you know, there was quite a large crowd, they had to turn and say, so we need to talk about what just happened. And what just happened didn't happen just then. I didn't just project some aura of calmness and I didn't just woo this horse or whatever. I said, that really doesn't normally happen. But let me tell you what I've been doing for the last 10 months. And so I basically spent the rest of that session talking about the things I'd learned in therapy and, you know, meditation practice and just different things I was doing, but it wasn't about horse training. But this, yeah, and it, since then it's happened quite a bit. But that, I think that was the first one where this horse was completely different when the lady handed me the lead rope. Um, when I got the lead rope versus when she had it, and for me the big thing was I had got to a point of of having no judgment, you know, that I... I had no judgment about the horse's previous actions before she handed the horse to me. It was just like, hey, how's it going? It's just that, it's just that, you know, ventral vagal community, you know, sense of, a, you know, sense of community, hello, sh- I don't know. But No, it's yeah. perfect. And what, what you're, you would have, you would have loved to have done therapy with us over here because we could have told you 
we could have helped you early on with maybe seeing that whole notion of be with the horse you're with right so it's i love what you said because to me that's such a beautiful example of being with with the the person you're with and i say this working with therapists and judges police officers whatever the populations we work with is be present with the person in front of you or the horse in front of you because that allows you to have an authentic relationship we go back to authenticity the other piece is i truly truly believe and the space between human and horse is where the connection is, right? It's not the mirror of the horse or you're the this or that. It's the space between. How do you meet in a safe, connected way between you and the horse? So what, that's what I was trying to say early on when I was working as a assistant to my friend Margie. My got job was to come down and celebrate the horse in front of me and not make them all try to be like the horse before. And that allowed me to go into grad school. And I remember using that when I was interviewed. I have terrible dyslexia. And so I was not necessarily the number one candidate for being a PhD. But I remember, and I think that's how I got into the graduate school I got into, because that's what I said. I remember saying, I've learned from horse working with horses to be with the horse I'm with. So. I go back to some of these things I learned all those years ago, and I'm like, oh, that really was something. <laughs> so I love that. I love it. It sounds like we're so much on the same page of what it is to be authentic. And that's what you're talking about is authenticity. Horses need congruence. They need authenticity. I don't know if they need it, but they want it because they're all about neuroception. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, I think they need it. You know, and for... Quite a long time doing, because I do clinics all around the world, and for quite a long time there was a number, most people I could help, but every once in a while there was someone and I just, I just couldn't help them because, you know, they probably should get rid of horses and get a cat, right. you know, preferably an outside right. cat sort of thing. <laughs> That's the thing I used to think because they're not good with animals, but what I, what I came to realise with, uh, with those people is they're not good with themselves comfortable and so a lot of what i do with the like at clinics and stuff these days is getting people more into their own bodies first rather than trying to do something to the horse because i i think that any technique you may do is only as good as the energy and intention with which you mm -hmm. present it and what's going on in, and, and you talked about incongruency a minute ago you know as a lot of times i see people asking a horse to do something but their body language is really incongruent like half their body language says i would like you to move over there and the other half their body language is going oh my god you're a big scary horse and i think i would right. rather i'd rather get out of your way sort of thing and um just trying to get people to be congruent with themselves i tell people hey if you're scared you're better off acting scared and telling them you're scared than you are pretending you're you know i don't think the whole fake it till you make it works with with a with a prey animal who is is uh you know evolved to let's say be very wary of incongruent action like i always talk about you know if you watch the national geographic channel and there's the zebras eating the grass and the walk the, the lion walks by going to the watering hole in the background they don't even lift their head up because that lion is walking to the watering hole on a 
spiritual like everything's going to the watering hole but if he's like starts thinking oh i'm going to pretend i'm going to the watering <laughs> hole but i'm actually going to sneak up on these everest the whole right. the, the air in the room changes the whole energy changes and i think and that would be incongruent behavior and i think they've evolved to pick up on incongruent behavior as a danger signal and so people when they're trying to get their horse to do things and they're very incongruent these poor horses are in like sympathetic like this is not right like i don't trust what's going on here i think that same thing happens with therapists you know um i think that and i i have to roll back in the what she wish what do i wish i hadn't said i really do believe that therapy has a place I think that for many people sitting in an office, it's torture. And I think you can get to some of the same places very quickly when you do interactive, experiential, therapeutic workshops with horses and humans. We, we have a thing we call connection-focused therapy or connection-focused training, which is really like, how do you get up and move and connect with, with a person and connect with your own body? as opposed to sitting in an office and trying to like go deep into your body and be comfortable because you can't really be comfortable if you're sitting there evoking old memories. I, I'm sort of lo- a little lost with where I'm going right now, but I know everything that you're saying is, is so spot on of how you teach people to better understand their nervous system. Stephen Porges calls it neuroception. And neuroception is the sense of, am I safe, am I not safe? And it's an unconscious process going on in our body all the time. Horses are masters in that. But the thing that they embody that we're so, so far afield as human beings is how to then let go of that fear state, how to let go of that shutdown. And, you know, I know horses come in all shapes and sizes and temperaments as well and have their own experiences that they bring in with people. But they seem, in my perception, most of them have that ability to be able to sort of go up and down and be flexible in their state reaction. And I, and I, I think it's because that's what their survival. I think they're both predator and prey on some level because they have to know when they have to bring out that other part of themselves as well. They're just such phenomenal teachers for humans. <laughs> and that's the long and short of it, isn't it? That is the short of it. Okay, next question for you is, what's the most worthwhile thing you've put your time into? And when I read your, your bio, it's like, wow, you've put your time into a lot of things. So it'll be interesting to know which one of those you think is the, the most worthwhile thing you put your time into, the thing that changed the course of your life. Without question, ugh, it's, this is the deep, without question, working with some severe, helping people who, in particular one person who was abducted as a young child in helping this person find their legs and walk forward and realize their incredible resiliency and strength without question and what's been really fun like you I talk all over the world it always sounds so funny when you say that it makes you feel so like but and my message is really of the resiliency of the human spirit and watching 
these people who've maybe been in the, her case, and every you know, people know I worked with her, and she's been open about it. But kidnapped for eighteen years by a sex offender. Is she the one that's on JC, your? JC, yeah, JC Dugard. Is this she the one that's on your staff now? Yeah, like she's worked. Yeah, we yeah, we worked. Yeah. To yeah. I was just reading about it before I got on here. I'm like, what? What a story. She, we worked together for about a year what and an a half. Story. And then she said, I don't want my story to be the poor little kidnapped person because she never was that person. And so we went through ugh, three months of informed consent work and working through how do we transition out of this perspective of me being the therapist to us working together and being more in a mentorship. Um, she knew more about survival than I did, right? She'd had 18 years to process through so much. And that was what was so fabulous with the horse work. And that the horses, there was so much that the horses just kind of showed her that she'd already known. And I became a collaborator with her, with my horses. And actually, my two particular horses got very attached to her. It was pretty touching. Um, what's one of the blessings that I've had is being able to do extended treatment with different populations and watching the horses on some level take over. I have a young a woman I'm working with now and she's open with her story who her children were murdered by her husband and then he killed himself, her ex-husband, and did a bunch of really good therapy with a really good therapist on grief and then came to... Um, the foundation and the Polyvagal Equine Institute to work with us about the next step. And so we did a lot of horse work with her. And then, I, it's hard to describe this, but I guess I want to share this with you. So then she said, I want to, you know, can I come and help you take care of the horses a couple of days a week? So she came and brushed the horses and cleaned stalls and then would go into the arena on the ground, never riding, and one day I look out, and the, both the horses are laying in there with her. <laughs> like both of them, which is a little unusual, right? Little, well, usually one, not both. And I go down, I check in with her, and she's crying. And um, I said, okay, what's happening? And she said, I, I, I think that you know they're my children who are dead. And this is a little startling story to bring out of the air, but I just felt like sharing it. And um, we talked, and we kind of processed it through. And then the next day she came to me, and she said, no, I figured it out. Those horses are showing me that my kids are at peace. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. And it's like, what a story. I, I know I pulled that one out of the air but I have so many stories like like this that I I um you try to explain it and unless you're one of us you don't really get it but even I didn't get their ability to take her to a different place that all the yak 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 in the world wasn't going to do it do you know what I mean it just said I um we have pictures of, of it I I sometimes will come out on my I'm on a very small California ranchette and I'll come out in the morning when she'll be down there she comes three days a week <laughs> and I'm always thinking my black and white mare is dead because there's silence <laughs> and then I'll I'll say I'll do this you know like let me know and Vel Dr. Velcro's tail will go up in the air to show you know and and this woman will do this or something but 
without exception, when I look out and see it, I'm always like, okay, because Velcro, Dr. Velcro is 36 years old. But so I'm always like, is it, you know, you know how you do that with the older ones? Like, oh, um, I don't know if you do, but that's my fear that I'm going to walk out one day and that will have happened. But I think I, I share that story because it's just such an example of like, they took, they took the reins and took the therapy and figured it out. And it's not that she didn't need the work ahead. It's not that she didn't need the human work. It's not that she didn't need the human um, multiple hypotheses that we offer when we work with families and groups. But the horses just knew what needed to get done. Yeah, they're pretty amazing that way, aren't they? Really amazing. So I took away from JC's. I didn't want to take away from JC because she is the one. But I, I also want to acknowledge these other individuals I've worked with that have blown my blown my mind. And and that's the biggest gift I've had is to hold testimony to their healing. Um. So JC was kidnapped for like eighteen years and had mm -hmm. two children mm -hmm. with this guy, didn't yep. she? Yeah. And they're awesome too. And you know. Thank you very much. Wow. She's gone forward in her life and she despises being called the kidnapped survivor because that's not who she is. She's actually an equestrian and um, facilitator in her own right. And often she'll work with groups and families under, and nobody will know who she is and that's you know preferable or not, depending. She's not embarrassed. Right. But, but sometimes it's better if they just take of who she is and not the story yeah. that they have about. We found judges and police officers and others often get a lot out of it because she doesn't blame the system. You know, she certainly didn't like how the system treated her, and I don't like mm, to speak yep. for her ever. But um, sometimes she's a she's a little bit of a beacon of moving forward and getting unstuck and being flexible in your response to the event that happened in your life and not everybody can do that we understand that again you know it doesn't mean that people that can't that they get stuck should be judged never ever ever um but she's pretty amazing she sounds like it so something so i, I haven't told everybody this but i was told about you by christine mm -hmm. dixon she's wonderful who I had on okay. the podcast here recently, Christine is wonderful, and she said, she said to ask you about this because she knows about me having a, you know, a freeze response all my life, and that's been my go-to, and she said to ask you about doing training for judges and police on on polyvagal stuff because you can have. She said, you'll have a kid in front of a judge and the judge asks him a question or something or other and the kid will yeah. freeze and the judge will take it as the kid's being, uh, you know, like choosing not to answer or ignoring him or whatever and they don't understand that that, that kid has gone to dorsal right. shut down and is incapable of... Is, is that a common yeah, thing? Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm going to be protective of judges in that they have the most horrendous job that we could ever imagine. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? So many oh, of them. Yeah. What we we published a paper. I published two papers. One with Deb Dana, who's an amazing polyvagal person. One was on polyvagal and high conflict 
divorces to understand how attorneys and judges and families get all caught up. And the other one was helping judges understand polyvagal responses and how to handle their own polyvagal response, how to handle their own shutdown or judgmental peace. When I think what Kristen was talking about, um, Christine was talking about, was particularly with the cross-examination maybe of a rape victim or someone else, where they're saying, where were you at that time? And the person can't answer, and the prosecutor might look at it as like, look, this is an example, they're not telling the truth, or um, they're, you know, mm. and it's, it's, when I started becoming aware of that about 10 years ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, this is like essential in our judicial system is this ability to be able to articulate things that have happened. When I work with um, victims, survivors, warriors, <laughs> whatever we're going to call, I will really work with them on understanding how to get back in their body through breathing, having, um, I had a young man and young lady who'd had horrendous, horrendous abuse that were just testifying and I brought them both um, ice water in a container and so that they could have a sip if they lost it lot were losing focus of that ice water to bring them back in it's also at the root of therapy dogs in there or weighted weighted blanket or weighted stuffed animals that kids will be able to have on their lap but remembering that when you're in that terror you lose your ability to access upper level thinking so that's another kind of funny thing those of us that love horses we always just think, oh, horses are, but there are people that are terrified of horses. So the experience of coming and working with us on the ground with horses allows them to access that fear. Certainly not the dorsal fear. I've had a few that have been very, very scared, but nobody in terror, f pure terror, but allowing them to experience that here and then learning how to manage it on the stand or in therapy or doing questioning or in their real life is really a useful tool. So I, I think one of the things she may be talking about is we were doing a group of, I think, 60 judges. It was 30, a group of 30 each in um, Colorado about six years ago, and there was one judge that really did not want to go in the arena. She was so afraid and didn't want anyone to know, right? Because you can't really show people you're scared if you're a judge, supposedly. and. Um, kind of talked with her and got her to go in and then we went in and she was telling me that she was very angry at us because there was a quote unquote abused horse. These were a friend of mine's horses who trust me, abused no horse. I knew that this horse was 41 years old. <laughs> so when I was able to say to her, does it change your mind if I tell you this horse is 41? <laughs> she went, oh my God, everything changed. And then she was able to connect, A, the assumptions that she can do on the bench, and B, when she has fear, that sometimes it's about an assumption that she might make. She just had this whole unraveling of her narratives that she gave towards whatever was happening in her body. So that's really true, true with police officers. Um, it's just, we, therapists, I love doing professional groups for coaches and therapists, particularly coaches, because I like them to get out of their head into their body and out of the preconceived notions that they have about things, particularly what it's like to be afraid, what it's like to be almost in a dorsal, like we have a couple horses that we don't 
They, they, when they get turned out, they're rearing and running around and having a blast, right? Well, that's really scary. And we certainly don't send the people in with that. But pay, have them pay attention to what does it feel in your body when you feel like that? So I'm sorry, I do get tangential. I get going and I can't stop. <laughs> hey, that's that's great for this podcast. Hey, do do you know like first responders and things like that? They have um, uh, like say mental health counselling. Do judges have mental health counselling? Because that's got to be a lot of stuff to weigh on your psyche. You know, we I work with a organization called the National Council of Judicial and Family Court Judges, and they're in my mind one of the first groups that have really been acknowledging that piece. Um, I have, because of the you know international connections, I'm connecting to the Polyvagal Institute with a barrister in Ireland, and we're beginning to talk about how do you, how do you address that? The problem is they can't talk to anybody about what's going on for them. They really can't, because the judges I know are really, right. they're, they're tight, they don't you know, talk over dinner about a case, they just don't do it. Um, and then there's also in the US, you're elected. And so there's this perception of, you know, wait, what do you mean you're going to counseling? Or what do you mean you're doing a workshop with horses? So we always have to be very careful to call it not a retreat, but to call it trainings and things like that. Because perception can be, we, I mean, talk about projecting on horses. We project on judges that they're supposed to be this, this certain way. And they're not. Many of them are really dedicated. They don't, at least in the U.S., they don't make a hell of a lot of money unless you're the guy overseeing the PG&E lawsuit and then you made 125000 a month, but he's the exception. <laughs> you know, I had to get that dig in, having lost my house to PG&E. I had to do it. But, um, but no, they, they don't. Um, right. I'm very honored when a judge reaches out and will talk to me about something. And for a while I was doing consult for an organization where you could call anonymously but they're just beginning to understand how important that is. And um, to me, the first step is understanding how to make a home in your body and be comfortable in your body. How to, and that's where I say, I think the field of therapy has gotten it really, really wrong. I think that we've gotten too deep into the brain and the thinking of the brain and those patterns instead of really making comfort. It's like if I sit there and I analyze the horse over and over and over and try to go into his past hi history of trauma, it's a context, but then I'm not seeing him for who he really is, right? And it's the same thing with with understanding therapy. Yeah, the top down thing didn't work for me um, because I am stuck in my head. You know, I haven't been in my body, and so yeah, the top, the, the top down thing didn't really. For most people, it, really I don't do think it does. For most people, for I think me. intellectualization is a high is a defense. You know, they say humor is one of the healthiest defenses, but intellectualization is not necessarily the healthiest defense because it gets you stuck in fight, flight, or dorsal, right? Because you can't be open if you're up here all the time processing and putting the data points in. So it really, and that again is where workshops with horses or trainings or, you know, I even believe we even at Polyvagal Equine, we're developing some videos for people to watch just of the horses. 
so that to get a different experience of what these like major fight flight dorsal and ventral might feel like in your body what it might look like in your body um okay i'm gonna ask another question we're gonna digress back to our questions here and this one's a good one what's an unusual habit you have oh god how revealing do i want to be um Really bad, crappy TV. Well, you chose this question, so could be as revealing as... Reality TV, although I got really tired of one that I loved for years. I loved The Bachelor for years. Even though it's the most misogynistic, disgusting television show, my husband couldn't stand when it was on. I finally burnt out on that, but... um, Really bad. And I loved, oh my gosh, Say Yes to the Dress. I was obsessed with that thing. I didn't have TV for 15 years. And so when I finally got it, I found this whole world of inane crap. And Say Yes to the Dress, that was like a really, really inane. It was so fun to like imagine what your whole life would be like if you just had to worry about your wedding dress. <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> you didn't see that one coming. <laughs> You're looking at me like, what, lady? <laughs> not only did I not see that coming, not only did I not see it coming, I didn't see it. So Say Yes to the Dress, is that a, some sort of a reality show? It was show, an American it? show for many, and then I ran into the guy in the airport. That was so funny, um, the, the host. It was this American show that went on forever, and it was like 20 minutes, and the brides would go, this is like a waste of time to talk about it, but anyways, they would go into a, a, um, into a like shop, right? Like a shop I've never been in in my life, and they would try on the dress, and their friends would be there, and they'd find the perfect wedding dress. And like then they would choose three dresses, and they had to pick the best dress. But they never chose the dress I would have pr- chosen ever. Um, but it was like really became this obsession for a while. And then I was doing a training for a bunch of actually DBT therapists from Washington State. And we were doing a horse-related three-day training here on like, professional whatever and it turned out that they all watched the same show it was because i had a dinner and we said because we my husband's a chef we cook dinners with you know groups that come in often and i said what's your dirty little secret and they like i think it was eight out of the 12 said they like to watch yes to the dress so that's why i feel comfortable coming out with it on this broadcast (laughs) You know, I, I don't want a therapist, the therapist on the, on the podcast, but is, is that like something you don't even have to, like you, you've got so much on your plate all the time. Is that one of those things you can just numb out and it doesn't matter? Like it's, you don't yeah, really have to pay attention to, yep, to it. It's, yep. There's not a plot to follow. You can just kind of watch it. And the thing is part of, for me, the, one of the biggest gifts I believe that somehow I understood from very young was the need to do multiple hypotheses to human behavior. So when you have one hypothesis on behavior, you get into assumptions and judgments. If you're able to pull to multiple hypotheses, then you allow yourself to be in this ventral state of like curiosity, right? Like, gosh, I wonder, well, it could be this or if it's that. So for me, I'm trying to rationalize my like of this show. I could like choose which one was the right. 
And why was it be that? And often I was wrong, and I'd be like, oh, it's really wrong. She looks like a lady that would like lace. So whatever. Um, but I, I share that also as one of the tricks of the trade is multiple <laughs> hypotheses. <laughs> Listen, I, I, never, I never said I was... <laughs> multiple hypotheses. There's three dresses. Okay. <laughs> I've lost him. He's... <laughs> Okay, let's go with the next question. Uh, your next question is, what accomplishment are you most proud of? You know, I, I would love, I wish I could say having my children. <laughs> I always wanted to be the type of mom that would say that, but I love my children dearly. I will honestly really say getting through grad school <laughs> with dyslexia, um, if I really had to say, and I feel guilty saying that, what is it that like makes you, as a, at least as women, you feel like you're supposed, at least I do feel like that should be the front and center. But getting through grad school was huge. It was huge for me. Um, I like swimming upstream with one arm when you're really dyslexic. And we all, you know, we all have our challenges, but that really was my challenge. So that was a huge accomplishment to me. It really was. Um, I did it because I knew I had a gift. I always knew I had a gift of, of understanding and connecting with people. But I never thought I could, could get through the grad school. It was a very rigorous grad school. And what's really cute is most people did it in five years. It took me four years because I miscalculated the classes and took one extra class the whole time, which meant I got out sooner than everybody else. I got my dissertation done in six months or something like that. So, But that was a huge accomplishment, and I'm really proud of it. What would you say the... What would you say the biggest um, or the hardest things to do with your dyslexia with going at grad school? What, 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 what was the hard, you know, how did your dyslexia make it more difficult? You know, there's all the obvious of, you know, writing papers and stuff, but maintaining my confidence with some very arrogant human beings who I, I'll tell you the hardest story, and I'm being really forthcoming with you. I remember going into the library at UC Berkeley, and at the time, the Dewey Decimal System, you had to find books by like index cards. <laughs> like you had to look and find the area, and they were telling us where all the articles were. Well, I had spent my life in the library going alphabetically to find books, I, and so I couldn't understand what the person was saying who was trying to explain it, and I raised my hand and said, look, I'm so sorry, I'm very dyslexic, I don't understand what you're talking about. And after that experience, one of my classmates came up to me and said, you've embarrassed us. You've shown everybody, you know, you're, it was just like, and she just berated me. And I burst out in tears and thought, how am I ever going to get my PhD? I'm too stupid or whatever. Um, and so in all honesty, math was very, very difficult. That was very hard statistics. But the truth was holding on to my authenticity and my confidence. <laughs> it, was, it was hard. And if it wasn't for some of the professors 
who really would pull me inside and say, you've got it, you've got it, you know, understand that you have something that other people don't and it makes them frustrated, which was this ability to connect. I think it must be like being a really good horse trainer. And, you know, you might not look like everybody else, right? You might have your own way, but people get, and I almost feel bad saying this because it, you know, I just, people would get, frustrated and jealous because I bring it down to such a simple level. So um, that was really the hardest thing, was holding on to that confidence piece. And the work was hard, but but the horses helped me. That's what I mean. I'd get up at five and I'd go out and I'd work with the horses before. So what you're saying is the dyslexia wasn't the hardest part. It was the judgments, dealing with the judgments and stuff because of the dyslexia. Yes. And, and I mean, certainly it was very hard work. I mean, definitely, definitely. And like keeping your confidence. Keeping your confidence and knowing, you know, one of my favorite stories, which I actually share with other dyslexias, dyslexics, is I had a woman type all my papers for me. I figured out early on, she, I would tape record my, ver, my words and she would type it out. And my last year there, she was leaving ahead of me, and I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, and she said, what do you mean? You can hire somebody else. I said, no, 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 you changed my papers. And she looked at me, and she said, I never changed one word. I just put the punctuation in where it was <laughs> where it meant to be, you know? And so I, what I say is that I think I, I found my way to get through. I think if I'd had to sit there and type the papers, if you remember the old typewriters, I think I would, I, I got my um, doctorate right when um, the first apples came out. And I actually ended up with a computer my last year there, but before that it was all on mm. type, typewriter. So um, I think what I learned to do was use my resources in front of me and you know, figure out a way to get through it because I do think the dyslexia itself was not easy, definitely not easy. But now it's funny, I've really, I don't do, don't do math, can't stand math, if I have to do statistics, if I have to understand statistics, I'll ask Siri to help me understand it, you know? Um, but I read voraciously, absolutely, which has also taught me that you really can push through something. I love to read. What's, what's the upsides of being dyslexic? Intuition. It's intuition. You learn to count on something different. Like, I think it's probably you. That's a great question because I think it's why I, I'm so anti-over-intellectualization. -intell you know, I got to tell you, this is another funny story. And I'm, I'm sort of one of those European people that everybody hates. My family was an old, old Boston family. Old, old Boston family. And in 1920, you'll love this, I think, my great-grandfather was dean of um, Harvard Medical School, which I say embarrassingly because, again, it's such a Euro, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. So his, he was dean of Harvard Medical School, and in his obituary, his um, mantra or his platform was that women of Boston should wear comfortable shoes and wear moccasins. And that was his single biggest contribution to the world was he also did a thing called the Bradford Brace. But he really believed that women should wear moccasins, that that would cure all sorts of hip problems. And I look at this guy in 1920 saying this publicly, right, and talk about boiling it down to 
the most obvious simplistic thing. Um, I, I, I hold on to that because my whole thing is like curiosity, compassion, connection, play, laughter, all this stuff. And it seems so simple in a world full of like, you know, protocols of this way and do this and, you know, brain and your neurocortex and all that. And it's like, it's really boil it right down to bring joy, you know, to be able to bring compassion, curiosity, get your body regulated is really how we have, like Stephen Porges says, health, growth, and restoration resides in that part. And now hopefully you won't hate me because I'm one of those European people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. No, it's, it's interesting, like... You know, I'm, you know, when I talk about, say, polyvagal theory with the horses, I actually did a video on YouTube, I think, a few years ago about polyvagal theory in horses. And I, at the start of the video, I say, I always come to the science from the back end. I kind of figure it out empirically and it works. I don't know why it works, but it works really good and it works better than what I used to do and it works better than anything I've seen. So I'm using it and then I will stumble upon the science that says why it works and it, it sounds you know it sounds a little bit that yeah. way whereas you're less concerned about all the intellectual stuff and the, you know more concerned about the practical application of things. i'm just so happy that you're bringing the message because I, I i do know a little bit about you and i know people respect you immensely and you're bringing the kindness you're bringing the kindness into and and i'm very excited in the field of horse training and horse that that there is this shift there's there's beginning to be a different understanding of what it takes and i've been around i've had the it's not my life but my father had a horse that did go to the olympics in dressage and he had a percent a propensity for horsewomen who the last horsewoman woman took all his money with her and was a pretty particularly reprehensible human but talk about no judgment right i'm pure at heart but his this dressage horse used to three days a week get to go on the beach and just gallop through the waves and that his rider that did go to the olympics on this horse was not particularly the kindest human being um and i won't share his name because he's still out there but the fact that he would take that horse out three days a week and gallop on the beach was so cool to me and you know when i first when i was first riding out in california there was this thought about like oh you never take a show horse on the trail and it's like what are you talking about you know this is like a five hundred thousand dollar horse you know who goes galloping on the beach because it's good for the horse's brain and so and body so i love your message you know i just love it it's so synchronistic and what i so much believe which is the thing, ride the horse you're on, be with the horse you're on, find joy in the horse you're on, find joy in the people you're with, you know, all of that stuff. It's not always easy. You know, what I've found with the horses is, you know, I'm a big fan of Wayne Dyer's quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And the last five or six years helping people with their horses, you know, I've looked at things differently and having people look at behavioral issues more empathetically and instead of 
trying to figure out how to stop them showing that that behavior, try to figure out why that behavior exists and meet that need, you know, like it's all all an unmet need sort of thing. And, you know, I grew up with the whole, and it wasn't just my parents, it was the whole culture I grew up in was the whole, you know, stop crying, I'll give you something to Mm -hmm. cry about mentality. And a lot of horse training, and I don't mean abusive horse training, I don't mean old school hard horse training, I'm talking about horsemanship a lot of that that stuff involves you know if a horse say doesn't want to stand still and wants to move his feet we'll move his feet here and move his feet there and like if they want to move their feet direct their feet here and there and eventually they'll come to a stop but that is a bit more of the stop crying and give you something to cry about uh parenting style versus why does he want to move his feet what 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 concern? What concerns does he have? Why does he feel unsafe? Yada yada yada, all that. But what I found with helping people look at horses that way, you you cannot just do that because once you do that, then you start to see it somewhere else and somewhere else. And and I, I keep saying over and over that so many people, you know, will message me and say, "Oh, since I started doing following your stuff, you know, I'm so much better with my husband and my <laughs> kids and my coworker or whatever." And if you get into a conversation with them. They've had the same problems with their husband or their kids or their co-workers for years and never done anything about right, it. Right, right. Never taken the time to put the effort into it. But people want to get along with their horses and will do the work, put in the effort, and when they put in the effort to, you know, being a little bit more connected to their horses, a little bit more empathetic with their horses, I find it tends to, uh, you know, carry over into other areas of their life and i'm actually i'll tell you a story i got an email this morning you'll this will interest you because of the whole thing with the judges and whatever um i got an email this morning from someone from australia who and your house got burned out by a fire here a few years ago um there were some big fires in the area these people's area a few years ago a couple of years ago and maybe a year or so ago but then a year after that there were more fires in the same place and they were deliberately lit. I heard that. The second lot of fires were deliberately lit and they found out that this 19-year-old kid had deliberately lit them. And so, you know, everybody's up in arms and he's a terrible person. They want to throw the book at him. And the lady that sent me the email, her husband is a volunteer firefighter, as was this kid. Now, the husband didn't know the kid, but the kid actually got sent to the big fire the year before totally unprepared for a fire of that magnitude and ended up having PTSD from that. And that was the reason he lit the fire the next year. Anyway, this lady that emailed me this morning was saying her husband, as a volunteer firefighter, went to court, um, not so much in the kid's defence, but went testified in court about how being put in that situation would be overwhelming and there is no mental health uh, support for that. Anyway, so the end of the whole thing, the kid didn't go to jail. The kid actually got help. Wow. It's so interesting. And it was just so interesting to, to look at things that way. Yeah, you know? and it's in, the, in the old, I mean, I'm definitely not a Freudian, definitely not. But in the old psychodynamic work, you talk about repetition compulsion, where you do things to make sense of things that have happened. And that's a great example of him doing something to make sense. Or, you know, there was, I had a, a, a horse person the other day email me too about this situation where her son got in trouble right after the shooting in Texas. 
that happened last spring in America where these little kids were shot. And um, her son had drawn pictures of a guy with a gun shooting people. And the school was suspending him for it. And it was like two weeks after the shooting. And she was reaching out to me of like, what can I explain to them? And I said, this is what, this is how kids, this is how humans try to make sense of, th of traumatic things that have happened. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. What, what's also interesting, when you were talking about your work, that's where we're so much... And I wish you lived closer. You could come work with Polyvagal Equine Institute or we could work with you on this thing of like what we do is we get humans that come and work with the horses, right? Who they don't know these horses. And one of the first, first one is respectful walking together, okay? So you, you know, they've had time to get to know blah, blah, blah. And then just that act of how do you know when that horse is ready to walk forward two feet or one foot? And most people either drag the horse or they'll wait forever, right? You know, and it's like, well, how do you have the unconscious, unspoken agreement that we're going to walk forward two feet? And when you watch people like your average person, I'm not talking people that are horse people and even horse people, as you know, get blown away by this. But when I first started doing this work in the early 90s, I was like, hurry up, let's do more, let's do more, <laughs> you know, this is boring. And now I just see that wisdom of just the walking forward, two steps. Oh, what, how did that feel as opposed to you're asking? It's exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, you already know this because you're training humans more than as much, you're training the humans and the horses are kind enough to help you. <laughs> right you know when they these people come but but it's really um i it's it's just it's so neat to me when you get horse virgins around the horses and they really have this opportunity to understand what a connection is or you know what is it if you know there's one in the arena i also will set, tell you this is tumbling lots of stuff. I don't think every horse likes to do this. There are some horses that really don't want to work with humans. They just don't. And, you know, on the ground I'm talking about, you know, you could just tell. You could, they just, it's not their, it's not their jam. Um, but, but that piece of looking for mutual agreement, acceptance, and connection, again, the space between the horse and the human is where you got to pay attention to the agreement. Yeah, it's all fascinating stuff. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the thing I'm finding with, like I just, you know, like the example I gave a minute ago about the fire thing. I had another lady email me here a little while ago. She's been, you know, following my training stuff. And, you know, it's changed the way she looks at horses' behaviours rather than looking at like she wants to fix the behaviour or punish the behaviour. She wants to figure out why the behaviour is there. And her daughter was bullied at school uh, by this boy. And I think, you know, they're young, probably six, seven, five, somewhere in there sort of thing. And um, she came, the daughter came home and told her mother. And so the next day, I think the mother went to the bus stop or something or other. And she said, now, in the past, <laughs> I'd have done one thing. She actually found the little boy and walked up to him and he saw her coming and he kind of knew what was, she could tell by the look on his face, she knew what, he knew what was coming. And she sat down and she said, I just talked to him. And just asked him, hey, what's going on? You know, you feeling okay? You did this to my daughter and obviously if you did that, you're not feeling good about, about some things in your life. And 
they chatted through whatever the whole thing was and he was very sorry in the end and and the whole point of this lady emailing me was that would not have been my go-to nice and s- a couple of years ago but learning le- you know learning to do it with the horses and seeing the outcome kind of makes you aware that a that a different approach and a different outcome is possible. It's a regulated. What you're talking about is regulation. Now, the bigger challenge is when that little boy goes home or little girl to mom and dad who say, why the heck did you talk to that lady? You know, like that's the problem is that we're living in this dysregulated world, but still, nevertheless, not to negate what this incredible message that your person brought to you is the importance of being fully, fully regulated fully regulated and what we've found with even the the toughest cops even the you know toughest characters is being able to get out of a defensiveness out of a like you're wrong because you did this and get them to understand what it's like to be comfortable in their body when they're in a conflict that's often the biggest challenge but somehow the horses help with it. I mean, I do, you know, I have my theories why Polyvagal Equine Institute, we have certain ideas, but again, we also have multiple hypotheses of why. It's also interesting, there are certain people, certain energy, and I hate to say that because it makes me sound too Californian, and as a Bostonian, I'm, I'm always afraid of sounding too Californian, but there are certain individuals that horses will definitely back off from i the theory is that it's incongruent inauthentic i don't know i don't know you know i i think the important piece is when you have somebody that you're working with in a workshop or um you know individually or whatever it is in a training those are the ones that you want to get your your calmest you know call this horse and hope that there with some grooming they can connect and find a, another place and then see how they are in the same place. But I'm always surprised that there's a, often one that the horses are like, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, we had a funny thing happen here at our place. Oh, this has got to be three years ago, maybe. Um, it was just after the World Equestrian Games in 2018. So my wife and I were on the Australian uh, reigning team and my wife's horse was the oldest reigning horse there I think Oscar was 14 <laughs> but we had a we had a, a, a good friend Jane Pike from New Zealand she's an equestrian mindset coach and she came over and helped us you know she worked with us all the way leading up to the world equestrian games and came with us as our as our mental coach but w- her and my wife Robin did a workshop here the week after the world equestrian games and it was just a little thing, but they had some little obstacles set up in the arena with the horses. And like, you know, let's say you have three cones in a row with two poles on either side and you put two lead ropes on the yeah. horse and there's one person on either yeah. side and they've got to guide the horse through the little thing. Things yeah. like that. Oscar was doing good <laughs> with all this stuff until they, what they did was they blindfolded the person leading him and she had to lead him through this little obstacle course thing and the people were telling the person... Right verbally telling the person where to go a little to your left a little to your right that sort of thing oscar got all weirded out when the person leading him didn't know where they were going good like he was like and oscar's the coolest calmest horse ever you know but 
he was, I forget if he was grinding his teeth or like something he never yep, does. Yep. See, that's that old. E- and just because this person was blindfolded and the energy changed. Yeah, and that's know? that old EGALA. EGALA, the organization I'm sure you're familiar, did a lot of really, really cutting edge early on equine assisted intervention training. That's such a good example, though, of one of the issues that wasn't fair with that model. No offense, and I have some respect for some of the things they did and not for some, but that's such a good example of, like, why put that poor horse through that? Not that you guys did anything wrong, but, I mean, relationships are built on trust and connection, right? And I I will say I've done stuff myself with blindfolding and things like that or covering eyes, um, but the idea that you have the horse have to trust these incredible beings that trust us so much to have them trust somebody who doesn't know crap of where they're going you can see why that would provoke that and i don't think you did you know obviously i'm not telling you this to make you feel better because i don't think you feel bad about it but it's not like you damaged oscar right oscar was like went back to grazing after the exercise. But I really like that example because we've seen that too. And again, I've made my own share of mistakes. (laughs) Oh my God. I've even had my favorite, one of my favorite is we have, this has nothing to do with this, but I think you'll think it's cute. We had, um, we have this one horse, Dr. Velcro, who was given to me by one of the ex-wives of the Grateful Dead. Um, And this horse, Dr. Velcro, has helped more people than I can count. She's the black and white. I know the, the, People can't see this on a podcast, but you can probably see her behind me, and that's Dr. Velcro. So we're doing a, a filming. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's yep. really cool. Amazing. She could have been a high-level eventer, but she came into my life. So we were doing a filming, and we had some major network down at the barn filming an interview, and she let all the horses out in the middle of the interview open the lock and you know it wasn't many I think there were four but they all went galloping by and like you know chaos and I had to talk about polyvagal ground myself and act like oh this is no problem and we switched into gear and had the host of the show have to go walk up carefully with the one of the horse handlers and get the horse (laughs) But inside, my whole being is like, oh, crap, this is not doing any good for safety and mutual respect, you know. So I I guess the reason I said that is so um, I think sometimes equine professionals and therapists, we pretend that we never make any stupid things or, you know, like we, you know, we... uh, we don't make mistakes and it should all be this way and it's black and white and blah, blah, blah. And again, that's what I love about horses. They bring the damn humor so much if we let them, right? If we just let them like reveal some of them, some of them aren't clowns, but some of them are. And if we just stop being so uptight, I mean, safety always comes first. And that was a very unsafe situation. Um, but I, I guess I also share that to the importance of authenticity, realness, you know, um, and to cover up the fact that I felt like I was criticizing you and I didn't mean to sound that way about old Lasker. Oh, no, not, I, I didn't take it okay. that way at all. And, you know, that, that exercise could have been done without, without anybody leading right. you on a horse. But uh, the, you were talking about energy yep. and you said, oh, well, I'm a Bostonian. I don't really want to sound too <laughs> Californian. I'm all about energy. But if you think about this yeah. person had been doing stuff with Oscar yes. and her energy was just fine. Yep, yep. Until she put the blindfold on, and obviously then she's not confident anymore, yep. 
and Oscar, and I think he was grinding his teeth. And Oscar's never ground his teeth in his, you know what I mean? It's like it was just such an, a, a great example of how when a person is unsure it, around yep. a horse, how much it it's affects neuroception. Them. That, that horse the couldn't point really feel safe, right? So, from a polyvagal perspective, his neuroceptive. What I can't. This is my term: neuroceptive radar. Porges calls it a TSA agent. Is it safe? Is it not? I think there's a radar that comes out. I'll also tell you, I'm I, I'm big on self-deprecation. I had this beautiful 17-2 thoroughbred who was a big eventer, incredible mover. <laughs> Wrong horse for me because he scared me half to death half the time. So um, I ended up selling him to somebody in Florida. Hadn't seen him in three years. <laughs> I went to see him and I walked into the barn and he immediately started weaving <laughs> and grinding his teeth and the new owner went I've never seen him do that <laughs> I think he thought uh oh here comes this lady because I was terrified riding this horse he just was he was too much horse for me right um, but I just I always think of that of mm. that neuroception of like are you safe are you not safe Right, and that's even true in therapeutic interventions. Of is this therapist safe? I cannot tell you how many people say to me, and this surprises the heck out of me. And actually, I've heard this from other survivors where they've been told this. They say, you know, I'm coming to talk to you, and I'm trying not to do all the therapy. Any, I'm not trying to do as much direct service because I'm doing all these workshops. But people will call me and say, you know, I'm, would you see me? And um, I've had two, one or two therapists tell me that my story is too much, that they can't handle my story. And I'm so shocked to hear that therapists would say that, right? Like, you know, I understand you have to be in your scope and your confidence, but what a message to a person, right? Your, your story is too much. And I think sometimes that's the message that people give to a horse. Like, you might be too much, like with my horse that I drove over the edge of anxiety somehow. I think um, we're constantly looking, am I safe? Will you judge me? Will you accept me? Will you let me be who I am? And that's like the core of all of this, whether it's with horse training or horse gentling or therapy or whatever it is. I haven't found the right word for training. Have you? Do you use training? Well, the, the, I do use the term training because if I'm actually teaching a horse mm -hmm. to give a response, mm -hmm. I'm training it. But there's so the connection, though, is not about training. It's about attunement. It's right. about communicating yeah. my awareness. You know, and there's a – I don't know. If, have you ever heard of Ray Hunt? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, one of Ray Hunt's disciples lives down the street. She and her husband were the one that started uh, the Pirelli horses early on. Um, Julie Atwood, she's, I don't mm -hmm. know her very well, but she lives down the street. So yes, oh, okay, Ray yeah. Hunt is amazing. Amazing. So, okay, so there's an old Ray Hunt saying that says they know when you know, they know when you know and they know when you don't. And I used to think that meant they know when you know what you're talking about and they know when you don't. They don't know if you, they know if you know what you're doing and they know if you don't know what you're doing, which is true. But then a number of years ago, and it was about the same time I was really getting into this whole well, what turned into polyvagal theory. Um, I read an article by someone who was around Ray Hunt a lot, and he said, so when you're around your horse, 
you need to be aware of what his ears are doing. You need to know what his eyes are doing. You need to know what his nostrils are doing. You need to know what his muzzles are doing. You need to know what his back's doing. Is it tight? Is it loose? You need to know what his tail's doing. Is it up? Is it clamped? Is it loose? You need to know what his feet are doing. Are they standing square? Are they standing slightly braced? And you need to know all those things because they know when you know and they know when you don't. So they basically then know when you are present. And I think for me that's what gives them a feeling of safety. If you think about a herd of horses – and you take a horse away from the herd of horses and he's all upset. He wants to get back to the herd because that's where he feels safe. But it's not the physicality of the herd. It's not that, oh, if the saber-toothed tiger shows up, two of these guys are going to go over and kick him in the head. It's a sense of shared awareness. You know, what I, I call it the awareness burden. And if you are not present, if, you, if a horse knows you're not present around them, they feel like they need to have the whole awareness burden and those tend to be the horses like that one at the horse expo in new zealand that walks around and looks everywhere and he's whinnying and he's frantic and stuff because they can tell the human is not is not present and I, I really think that's a big part of the with horses a big part of the the safety part that's not necessarily the connection i don't think that's necessarily the connection part but that's a big part of them feeling safe around you and then i feel like when you all the other attunement stuff, that gives them the real sense of connection and really gets them into that ventral vagal tone and then they you know, and then they're just as happy to hang out with you as they are with another horse. Like earlier on in this podcast you said something about this horse, like, Oh yeah, I'd never done any join up or anything with him. Any of those tech you're talking about you asked me about training right, right. a minute ago. You know, I used to train horses to stay with me because there was in it, there was energy they had to use when they were away from me. If they were away from me, I'd put pressure mm-hmm. on them, move them around. And if they came over, or they looked at me or came over here, they could stand still. It's like, okay, so I'm the, I'm the resting place, but they're only doing it. It's like you're the least bad place. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you are connected with them, you, can, you have that attunement with them and they, they sense, you know, you're in that ventral vagal sort of thing. They want to hang around you just like right, you're another right, horse. Right. <laughs> Standing around, moving together, hanging around together, and so this, so that part, the, I don't feel like there's any training yeah. involved in that. You were just yeah. communicating to them your awareness, yeah. but then there, but on top of that, there is training. But th- these days, the for me, the connection comes first, and then how I go about training goes on top of that connection and reinforces that connection. So it's still about connection. It's not just training, but I do use the term training. And it's, it's interesting because I think, as I said earlier, um, I've ridden my whole, whole life. And, you know, for the average person, I'm probably a pretty decent rider. I really believe horses have way more to teach me than I have to teach them, whereas I'm going to assume people like you, people like my friend Margie's, people like some of these really accomplished riders, they have a lot to teach the horses too. So, you know, the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about connection, I've had the experience of my life of having a couple horses that were really beautifully bonded. And in my book, and I'll say, you know, the equine connections, polyvagal principles, I talk about Lockett and Jack. And early, early on, there's this incredible story that actually makes people cry. And I didn't mean to. It's just early on, I was in a horse show. I was very young. And Lockett and Jack were best, best, best friends. And I was going around one of those horrible little walk trot classes or walk trot canter, and a little pony went under Lockett's 
cut under her head and she flipped over and fell on my leg and you know s made this really loud noise and Jack from all the way across the showgrounds broke his halter and came galloping over next to the arena and it was just like oh and these two best best friends they didn't even live together so it wasn't bonded you know um and then i had another example of mm -hmm. in the yeah. in the fire um dr velcro and freesia everybody had to leave traumatic you know all that because australia i know you guys have your fires so velcro dr velcro goes in a trailer in a heartbeat just you throw the rope in over her neck she goes in so she went in and her buddy, Frisia, who is her true, true best buddy, would not go in and was flipping out. And she broke out of that trailer and wouldn't leave. They had to leave her that night in the arena because the flames were coming down. And they couldn't, they had, you know, another like 18 horses that had to get out or something like that. But talk about companionship and connection and like sense of safety. And I do think Lockett and Jack and Frisia and Velcro... Dr. Velcro have really, really remind me of what it's like to be truly in relationship and truly feel safe. Those are the same two, Dr. Velcro and Frieger are the same two that laid down with, with that client, you know, who had lost her kids. And I just, I, yeah. I continue to be floored with what those two particular horses have to teach about connection, which may not look like two other horses, you know? There's just... It's really interesting. I think in the field of equine-assisted interventions, there has been a tendency to, to broad-brush all horses, you know? Um, whereas when you're riding horses and working, there's an understanding of the different styles and temperaments. I'm glad to see in equine-assisted interventions, we're beginning to say different horses, different population, different day, different horse, you know? Like you might go to the barn on Tuesday and you have this highly anxious woman and you're like, eh, I don't think I'm gonna bring this horse out. And that's where I really value my horse professional, even though, again, I know my horses and with my own horses, I'm pretty comfortable being a horse professional, but I just really, really, like having another set of eyes who has another who speaks a whole nother language fluently that I've learned, but I don't necessarily have fluent, if that makes sense. And that's all the connection, right, yep. the power of connection and awareness. It. Yeah, that's all I'm on about these days. So tell me about the, let's go over these books. So the author of two books, Safe Kids, Smart Parents. What? When did you write that one? What was that one about? Safe Kids, Obviously, Smart Safe Parents kids. I wrote in 2016, and it was basically about dealing with scary situations with kids. And when I wrote it, Simon & Schuster said, nobody's going to really buy it because it's scary. And um, so I wrote it with my sister, who was actually quite accomplished horse rider and a, a, a nurse and an LMFT. So we wrote this book, and it got really good recognition from library clubs. I got on you know, Good Morning America and all these major TV shows, but it really didn't sell very many because people are terrified to talk about the subject. And the thing about the book is it isn't like gory details. It's kind of like simple things like how to play I Spy with your kid to make them more aware of their surrounding, you know? So things like that. So it was a disappointment in that it didn't um, show. I, I went back to New York and I was on Anderson Cooper and all these shows and I came back to do a local book signing and three people showed up 
um, the third grade teacher, I kid you not, a man from the Manba Association, Man Boy Love Association, and my husband. And after I'd been like in chauffeured around New York and on the networks, I come back to this thing. I think there might have been two more people. I think my kids came. But um, so that was a bit of a disappointment in that I really, it's, it's a great book. You can still get it probably for 50 cents on Amazon called Save Kids Smart Parents. Um, again, it's just that like really simple thing of um, things of like how to help your kids be safe without scaring them to death. And, you know, I had never really thought about it until I started researching it that I Spy is an awareness game. And so, so that's that one. The other book, The Equine Connections, Polyvagal Principles, was a heart book. And that's, I started, I've been asked all these years, like, please write what you're doing, write the stories, help us understand the polyvagal principles. So that's what that one's about. Um, I think it's a good read. The Europeans love it. Americans love it when they read it. It just has it hadn't. I just got it on Amazon, which is good because before you would get it through the Jace Foundation, and then the proceeds would go to the Jace Foundation for scholarships, etc. Um, it's going to reach a wider audience on uh, Amazon for sure. Oh, I was going to say that first book. Do you think? Do you think it didn't resonate with people because they don't actually want to think about what could yes. happen? Yes, I think people don't want to think, and that's what's so tragic about. Also, what what the head of he now owns Simon and Schuster, but what the editor at the time said is that people could just go on the internet and download how to protect your kid. And so there's a fast food generation we live in, right? We want to eat quickly. We want to, you know, get, not mm. we, I don't, but <laughs> many people do. Um, same things with horse training, that whole notion of send your horse to a horse trainer and then you're going to get your horse back and then the horse comes back and the horse is like, what? Who are you? <laughs> you know? Um, so there really is this, this, you know, fast track ability. And so I think he was spot on when he said that. That um, And I really, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I think it's a really, really accessible, well-written book. But people are afraid of it. People think they can, you know, read, read the internet. I can get the answer quickly. Um, you know, and, and again, sometimes if we wrap things in over-intellectualization, it seems more, it seems smarter, right? So, you know, somebody might go buy one that's like, this, you know, hardcover this thick, and that might be more one that you'd write than the, the paperback that's this much and is, you know, sounds like in some ways, I've always been told that right. I often sound like you're sitting in my living room talking to me when I, you know, communicate sometimes with people. And I pride in that because that to me makes it more accessible. So I think there's a number of reasons, but yes, the real reason is people don't want to think about it. You know, you just said that you are, um, you know, people, people sound like you're sitting in your living room and you're more accessible. I wrote down a quote the other day. forget who it was by and I've got to look it up, but I know it's got something to do with this. Here we go. It's not the listener's responsibility to understand what you are saying. It's your responsibility to help them understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and make it attainable and accessible. Yeah, it's your job to put it, put it in such a way that they can understand it. It's not their job to understand all the big words. You know, like... People will send me a scientific paper on something, and I'm not scientific at all, but people send me a scientific paper on, on some idea that I've been sprouting off about anyway. Yeah. And, you know, so I'll have a look at it. And the first, what's the first thing? Abstract? Yeah, is yeah, that what yeah, it says yeah. at the start? Yeah. At the yeah. top? Abstract? Yeah. 
I don't even know what that means. Sounds abstract to me. But anyway, I'll read the first sentence and I'll have to stop and get the dictionary out three times. I'm like, I'm never going to make it. See, I agree. I I just wrote a paper that we're rewriting to get published with JC and Stephen Porges on the notion of appeasement. And appeasement has to do with this like super ability for someone in a captive situation or to be able to expand this is going to take here goes another hour and i know we don't have that time but the ability to be in deep terror and then go into ventral vagal and be able to calm the aggressor it's a it's it's a it's innate in some people so people like elizabeth smart jc dugard other people many other people have this ability to calm the beast without knowing it without getting stuck in the fear and when we explain it it's so simple but what we found is the word appeasement is starting to take off but it, they're also turning it into fawning which it is mm. not fawning is not fawning has nothing to do with this innate ability and w- where when i first got in the field i had a supervisor that said rebecca you need to act like you know the answers people pay the big bucks because they want you to know everything and i was like but i don't know everything and i never will and so my piece has really been i don't know everything teach me about you let the horses help teach about you and me to understand better what this is some people want it some people want the over intellectualization it's it's the uh you know, intellectual masturbation is what sometimes I think people really want. <laughs> it's a great term for it. <laughs> I pull these out. Oh, yeah, I have one other one I had to share with you. Pa- you- Polyvagal equine. I-, I love this. This is, I was running on the treadmill, which is another one of my dirty little secrets because I don't look like a runner, but I was running on the treadmill watching Good Morning America. And Tyler Perry, who's an American, I guess, director, actor, came on and he talked about something. And I said, that's it. So when I look at what is Polyvagal Equine um, Institute to me, it's my back pocket project. It's the project you have when you first start out in the field and you're like, oh my God, this is such a good idea. And you put it in your back pocket and you go out into the world and you do all these other things, right? And you write papers and blah, 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 and do this and get on TV. And then you go, God, what was that back pocket I really wanted to do? And so that's what Polyvagal Equine Institute is. It's my back pocket, my back pocket project. It's the thing I want more than anything in the whole world with my herd of around me is to help the world be more regulated and kinder. And I need the horses to help me teach regulation and kindness. And if I can, you know, on my tombstone, of which I won't have because I want to be cremated, if that can be written, that she helped the world be more regulated and kind, I will feel like I've done a good thing. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> well, if, if, you, if you help the world be more regulated and kind, you've, you have... You have helped more people than you've helped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, like if you can help someone be more regulated and kind, that they are now more regulated and kind to other people who can then be more regulated and kind and to Which then goes back to my early Grateful Dead years. If everybody just had a flower and was nice to each other, the world would be a better place, which is what trips me out, (laughs) that it all goes back to the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so... I mean, really, that's really the truth, which is ridiculous, but... (laughs) Good thing I stopped, you know, the... the, (laughs) I I think... (laughs) 
I like to make you smile. I think that's a great place to, <laughs> to end. Oh, you've been, I've been smiling the whole time. I think that's a great place to finish up there. So how do people, where, where are all the places that um, people can find out more about Dr. Rebecca Bailey and the e, uh, Polyvagal Equine Institute and Connection Focus Therapy? Therapy. You can go to www.polyvagalequineinstitute.com, sign up for our newsletter, and we are building the herd, and we definitely want to hear from people. So you can also, if you're interested in more about me, which you can go to www.rebeccabailey.com, I believe, but go to, go to Polyvagal Equine Institute. That's really the most interesting. It's actually drrebeccabailey.com. <laughs> See? That dyslexia I comes just looked in. It up. <laughs> you asked another problem with dyslexia. You can never tell what you are. <laughs> okay, thanks. And can, what about uh, connection focused therapies? Do you have connection focused therapy and trainings? Is you can find out more about that on the website. Um, again, this is the the technique or the approach that Linda Kahanoff and I developed and trademarked back in 2013 and we we're actually quite smart or proud of ourselves because it was before we even knew why we were doing it. So you can learn more about that on our website. You can also go to OponaQuest Worldwide and learn a little bit more there. But we all we will be doing a training in and Northern Linda's, Linda that's Kahana, website, yeah. isn't it? And we will be doing a training in Northern yep. California and also in Europe in the fall. We have two or three planned. So, and probably another one. Oh, and there's one in Arizona, as a matter of fact, in November. We still have two seats open. And when, when are you doing one in Northern California? We are doing it, I believe, in March. We have to sit down and firm. You know how it is with cats? You have to herd them to get the specific date on the calendar, and sometimes it's trickier than others. But I believe in March. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to come to something like that and see what it's you all would? about. I would love that. Uh, when are you coming to the states? Well, I live in the states. That's my surprise for you. That is a big surprise. Where do you live? Well, I live exactly one hundred and twenty-nine miles south of you. Get out Hollister. of here! I didn't know that. Get out of here. Get out, get out of here. You hear the Boston come through in me? <laughs> I did hear See, that. Just, I hear the, just, hear just Boston, like, the Boston yeah, come through there. Just like you. I can't lose my accent altogether. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's, let's get oh, you up Oh, my goodness. Here. It just came back. <laughs> It yeah, I'd love you. to come up and, and uh, see what it's all about. I would love it. I think we should do a training together. I think that would be even more excited um, in Northern California, train the horse. I think train. I'd love to come up and just to... Meet us. Yeah, I'd just love to come up and observe what you guys do. I think I could love pick it. up a lot from it. I think we can pick up a lot from you too. Awesome. Well, that, it's, it's a plan. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. I, I'm really happy to meet you, and I, for some reason, knew the herds would would meet at some point. So, thank you so much for having me. At it some was point, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. And for you guys at home, thank you for joining us on another episode of the Journey on Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for being a part of the Journey on Podcast with Warwick Schiller. 
Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.